So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today we are really excited to be joined by Casey Michel, who's a writer and journalist based in New York City. His writings on offshoring, kleptocracy, and financial secrecy have appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Vox, New Republic, and Political Magazine. And he's the author of a wonderful new book called American Kleptocracy, which I just read. I loved, and I invited Casey on to talk about it. So welcome to the show, Casey. Oh, Lev, thanks so much for being here. Very happy to be here with you today. Your book is about dirty money. Let's talk about what money laundering is. Can you explain what it is, why people do it, and, and how they do it? Lev, that's a, a fantastic question, really kind of the question at the core of my book. Money laundering at its simplest is the transformation of what we call dirty money or illicit wealth or ill-gotten gains into what we see as clean money, legal assets, or licit assets. That is to say, money and assets that on paper look like they are perfectly legal, perfectly accessible, and uh, something that we can, uh, uh, in the eyes of the law, is something that doesn't need to be questioned whatsoever. So that's really, when we're talking about money laundering, that's what it is at the end of the day. It is the transformation of dirty money into clean money, or if you would like to use another term, it is the washing or the laundering of that money, of dirty money, into clean money. Now, as the book lays out, this can take place through all kinds of different systems, all kinds of different industries. Uh, again, as, as the book details, it is using things like real estate. It is using things like um, private investment vehicles. These are things like private equity and hedge funds. It's using things like artwork. It's using things like luxury, good, uh, luxury goods items. It's using things like auction houses. It's using all of these different industries all of these different aspects, all of these different elements that perfectly easily and perfectly legally allow those with any kind of dirty money burning holes in their pockets to again transform that dirty money, to use that dirty money that then becomes clean money, legal assets that again, in the eyes of the law, have no reason to be questioned, have no reason to be investigated, have no reason to be searched. Because at the end of the day, what we're talking about, Lev, is those folks that have this dirty money, those folks that are using these money laundering systems, right? These are not successful business owners. These are not entrepreneurs. These are not moguls. Again, as I write about in the book, and certainly as plenty of other researchers have found, these are people that are working in illicit or illegal economies, illicit or illegal industries themselves. These are drug traffickers. These are arms traffickers. These are human traffickers or wildlife poachers. Or, as we've seen uh, certainly more and more frequently in recent years, these are friends of or relations of or those within dictatorial or autocratic regimes and governments elsewhere. These are, uh, you know, as I write about in the book, these are really the kleptocrats that especially I'm interested in. These are the oligarchs. These are the regime leaders and their families and their inner circles that are using their positions of power to access things like national treasuries, to access things like state contracts, to access all of these natural resources that no one else in the population has access to. And instead of that money going toward things like health budgets or infrastructure budgets or education budgets, instead of hospitals and schools, that money instead moves into these as we call them again, money laundering industries or money laundering services. 
You know, that is dirty money at its core that these oligarchs, these kleptocrats, these dictators are using and gaining access to. But they're not keeping that money there anymore. They are now moving that money into especially places like the United States of America. And again, using things like real estate, like private equity, like art and auction houses, like luxury goods to transform that dirty money into clean, legitimate assets that on paper nobody can track back to the original source, the original origin of where that money came from in the first place. There's, there's so many questions I have, but I, I want to come back to the point that you that you just made about the money flowing into the United States. So the book is called American Kleptocracy. I guess when I think of people who are hiding their money, I, I think of, you know, sort of drug dealers who are hiding their money in in Jersey, not New Jersey, but Jersey or um, the Cayman Islands or, or even in Swiss bank accounts. But the point of your book is that so much of the money, dirty money from around the world ends up here in the U.S. And I, I would guess that most Americans don't know that. So maybe you could go back and give us a little bit of the history. How did the United sure. States become one of the epicenters of, of money laundering? Yeah, sure. I mean, again, there's plenty of ways to answer that that question. Lev. The, the first thing I would say is just to kind of back up a second and talk about some of the terminology that's in the book and that some of the other folks that work in this space uh, use, you know, when they're discussing these money laundering systems and that I'm sure listeners are familiar with. You know, the, the first term to really kind of focus on is the term offshore. You know, Lev, you just mentioned a few different jurisdictions, the island of Jersey, you know, the Cayman Islands, places like the British Virgin Islands, maybe even places like Panama uh, or uh, you know Malta or Cyprus, these smaller jurisdictions, some in the Caribbean, some in the South Pacific, some in the Mediterranean. You know, these are the kind of traditional money laundering havens of yore, of decades and decades and decades ago. And as you can tell, all of these jurisdictions, or so many of them, exist literally offshore, literally off the shore of Europe, off the shore of the United States of America. And so when we still, to this day, talk about offshore finance or offshore money laundering services or offshore financial secrecy. That's where the term originally comes from. Talking about these smaller islands, these smaller countries, these smaller jurisdictions that literally existed or continue to exist offshore and that have been these traditional kind of playgrounds of and service centers for all kinds of financial secrecy needs. But as I write about in the book, that term is frankly, pretty outdated at this point. I mean, we still use the term offshore. I still use it in the book because we haven't really come back, come, come out with a, a better term as of yet. We mm. still use it to describe these centers of money laundering, centers of financial secrecy. But if you think about it literally, as I argue in the book, because the United States of America is now the center of so many of these financial secrecy services, so many of these pro-kleptocracy services, you know, the term offshore, it doesn't really make much sense because the United States has brought so many of these services, so many of these tools, so many of these policies back literally onshore into the United States of America. So if there's one thing to watch for moving forward, it is uh, hopefully some of us who work in this space trying to find better terminology to really be able to more correctly identify mm -hmm. uh, these sources of these, what we now call and still call offshoring services. But, but again, Lev, well, this transformation didn't take place overnight. It wasn't something that we just woke up one day and realized that the United States of America is now the global leader in these money laundering services industries, the financial secrecy services industries. You know, this is a decades and decades and decades long story that has all kinds of different players, all kinds of different policies 
that, again, brought so many of those previously traditionally offshore services back into the United States of America. But, but there are a couple of things that I want to highlight within that, a couple of key kind of inflection points along the way that really kind of help highlight how the United States transformed into this, as we call it now, you know, the biggest pro-kleptocracy uh, country in the world. You know, one of those is the fact that the United States of America is, as I'm sure listeners are aware, it's a federal jurisdiction, it's a federal polity. It's not just the United States government. The United States is made up of 50 different states in addition to territories and, and tribal nations as well. And because there is this federal construct in the United States of America, you have all of these different jurisdictions, these subnational jurisdictions, these especially American states that are able to create their own policies, are able to create their own financial services industries and their own kind of pro-offshoring sectors themselves that the United States government, because of certain policies, because of certain oversights and loopholes, the United States government can still not do that much about. You know, one of the, the key tools that I write about in the book is this thing called a shell company. And again, when we think of companies, we think of, you know, big, major, you know, international companies, places like Nike or McDonald's or Amazon. And that's fine. You know, those are still industries unto themselves. But shell companies are these things that exist only on paper. They're still technically companies, but you don't know who's controlling them. You don't know where their money is coming from. You don't know where their money is going. They are really this kind of perfect tool for anyone looking to hide and launder money. Because if you don't know where the money's coming from or who's controlling it, then you can't track it back to that original dirty source, uh, that dirty finance source. Uh, and what we've seen in the United States of America is that it is the American states themselves that have been providing, that have been creating, that have been selling these anonymous shell companies. It's not the United States government itself doing it. The United States government has no control over the states themselves as it pertains to forming these shell companies. So what you have now are states like Delaware, states like Nevada, states like Wyoming, that are able to create and uh, sell these anonymous shell companies that the United States government itself, the federal government in Washington is not able to do anything about. So if there really is kind of a root reality of this transformation in the United States, it's less what actually took place in Washington. It's less something that you know the American president or the American Congress decided. It's more the fact that the United States government is made up of so many, or sorry, the United States itself is made up of so many different jurisdictions. Which, is, which has opened this space for states like Delaware, states like Nevada, states like Wyoming, you know, these kind of smaller states that don't really have other you know, natural resource base or other bigger economies located in those states themselves. You know, these states realized that they could actually sell all of these offshoring tools. They could create these kind of miniature offshore empires of themselves and right, you know, located in those states themselves. Uh, without, you know, with the federal government not able to do anything about it. So again, if there is one reason to look for this transformation over the past two, three, four decades, it's the fact that American states have actually led this charge, not the federal government, but American states themselves. So that's one big area to focus on. It's the, the relationship between the states and the federal government. But there is still federal policy that we've seen time and time and time again fall short. 
You know, I, I do want to give credit where it's due. American Congress, American presidents of the past have targeted this issue, have tried to do something about it, but they have failed time and time and time again, even when they appear to be succeeding. And when I say they appear to be succeeding, and we had 20 years ago, the passage of a piece of legislation called the Patriot Act. Um, this was in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, uh, the September 11th attacks, uh, has all kinds of issues about basic civil liberties violations. But that piece of legislation was actually the most progressive piece of legislation when it came to tackling money laundering and the American role in terms of these international money laundering networks themselves. That, that piece of legislation specifically targeted American banks, which have been really a kind of a free-for-all through the 1980s and the 1990s. Anybody could come into American banks with duffel bags of cash, no questions asked. You could open an account, you could transform that into clean money, uh, and no one would have any idea about it. The Patriot Act comes in and really cleans that up. It says, uh, you know, American banks now have to check for sources of dirty money. They have to ask questions about potential money laundering. They have to file suspicious activity reports. I mean, it was really, in terms of the money laundering aspect, a very successful piece of legislation. And it didn't just target American banks. It targeted American real estate. It targeted American private investment. It targeted American luxury goods. All of these other industries that have been profiting from American money laundering services. There was a catch to that. There was a problem within that, in that a few months later, the Treasury Department issued what it called a series of exemptions, exemptions from these new anti-money laundering regulations. Not, not for the banking sector, they kept those in the American banking sector, but they exempted real estate, they exempted private equity and hedge funds, they exempted uh, art and auction houses, luxury goods, all, again, all these other industries that we know are popular destinations for money laundering. And that was fine. You know, the, the Treasury Department said, we want to study the issue. We want to make sure we're not being too onerous in the new regulations. You, you, you can see the logic there. You know, the problem was that they called these exemptions temporary. They said these are only going to be in place for a short period of time while we study the issue. The issue now is that these temporary exemptions have been in place for 20 years, which is not <laughs> exactly temporary whatsoever. Uh, and we know in those 20 years, while the American banking sector has, ha has been pretty well cleaned up, things like American real estate, things like American luxury goods, things like American private equity and hedge funds, all of these other industries that have enjoyed these quote unquote temporary exemptions have become the favorite destination for all of those looking to launder any little bit of dirty money they might have in their wallet, they might have in their back pockets. Again, these industries don't need to ask where the money's coming from. They don't need to ask who's benefiting. They don't even need to ask whether or not there's any kind of illegal or illicit source for the funds themselves. Uh, they are wide open to all of the, again, narco traffickers, arms traffickers, wildlife or human traffickers, all of the kleptocrats and the oligarchs and the dictators and their families. They can work with them perfectly legally, perfectly freely, and in so doing, again, continue transforming the United States of America into this center, this bastion of money laundering services. So that's really the two kind of key prongs. One, mm -hmm. you have the reality of the states. And two, you have on the federal side, these exemptions that have been in place for two decades. And those two things working in tandem, just built off of one another for years and years and years. And what we've seen in the 21st century is just an explosion of all of that wealth, all that illicit finance coming to the United States of America and taking advantage of all of this. You brought up the fact that the real estate industry has carved out a, a loophole for itself. Um, and, and you described in the book the lobbying efforts of these, of these different sectors. But a few years ago, the New York Times 
had a, a series on on actually all these buildings uh, along Central Park, where if you walk at night, these re- these luxury buildings, yeah. if you walk at night, like the lights are all off because yeah. no one's actually living there. And, you know, it's, these are shell companies buying a property and this is the way to park illicit money, illicit gains. Um, and every time, every time I'm around there at night, I, I think about this, this story. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting about your book is that some, something of a surprise, um, you know, you, you focus on one villain from Ukraine who has stolen a bunch of money from a bank there and then not put the money into, you know, like New York or, or you know, or San Francisco real estate, but actually like in, in Ohio, in the middle of the country. So tell us a little bit about this, this guy, what he did and, and where he was hiding his money. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was really one of the surprises on my end in writing this book together, uh, book, book as well. You know, when we think about kind of this kleptocratic money laundering, we're really thinking of these, you know, ultra high net worth individuals, these insanely wealthy individuals from around the world that like to park so much of their money, you know, as you just mentioned, in places like New York, uh, or in places like Miami or Malibu or you know London or Paris or Rome, you know all these you know incredible cities with uh, 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 you know uh, with incredible luxury real estate available to them, and certainly we see that over and over and over again. I mean, one of the other uh, key case studies in the book was it was a uh, uh, you know son of the longest standing dictator who plowed millions and millions of dollars into Southern California real estate. I mean th- that phenomenon still happens, but what this guy out of Ukraine did. His name is Igor Kolomoisky. He's a Ukrainian oligarch, made his money in uh, metals and in natural gas. He ended up running one of the country's biggest banks that, as we now know, uh, was effectively one of the country's also biggest Ponzi schemes with him on the top, looting at least five and a half billion dollars, if not more. Uh, You know, the investigations are ongoing. What, What he ended up doing with that money is not going to... Manhattan is not going to Miami, not going to Malibu or or Vancouver or uh, you know Berlin. He went to of all places Cleveland, Ohio, and then beyond that he went to all these other smaller towns, these smaller areas, these relatively overlooked areas of the American Midwest, of the American Rust Belt in in West Virginia, in Kentucky, in Texas, in in Illinois, you know all these different places that you would never associate with modern kleptocracy or with modern money laundering and you know on the one hand it's incredibly surprising you know, who would you know nothing against cleveland ohio but it's not what you would necessarily think of when you're thinking of these world-class mm-hmm. cities that are the general destinations for these oligarchs um, but on the other hand it really is not surprising whatsoever if all the attention from investigators and authorities is focused on places like new york is focused on places like miami but meanwhile the rest of the united states of america is perfectly wide open and is, oh, by the way, looking for any source of investment, any source of money that can come in whatsoever, then why wouldn't a Ukrainian oligarch or a Russian oligarch or a Kazakh oligarch or a Venezuelan oligarch, why wouldn't they go to these places that are completely overlooked, that no one would ever suspect as being potential destinations for again, all of this questionable, illicit or suspect money? And this is the exact dynamic that we saw take place with this Ukrainian oligarch, Kolomoisky. Nobody was paying any attention to Cleveland. Cleveland. Cleveland had fallen on hard times economically after the 2008 recession. It was looking for any kind of lifeline, any kind of resource whatsoever. You know, one of the, the city councilors there said when, when Kolomoisky's money first began coming into the city, it was like bringing water to a very thirsty man. Mm. You know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't begrudge the people in Cleveland for saying, 
you know, we're not going to ask too many questions about the source of this money because it's coming in. It's buying these commercial real estate buildings. I mean, Kolomoisky ended up becoming the biggest landlord in the entire city. Yeah, wow. He was plowing so much money in. But beyond that, you know, the, I mean, the, the, the caveat to that is even though all this money came in, it never ended up doing anything. It never ended up revitalizing the local economy. It never brought any jobs back. If anything, it was just parked there and kept there while the buildings kept slowly, slowly, slowly falling apart. And the city. Well, Casey, sorry to interrupt, but I, I, yeah. I, I wanted to ask about this because on some level, it's just really clear that taking money out of Equatorial Guinea or taking money out of Ukraine with, and starving the people of those countries of resources that could go to schools and hospitals and infrastructure and so forth. Um, it's bad for those countries, bad for poor countries. But what's interesting here, and you would think though that there's if a shift if the shift is coming to the United States, the money's moving here, and there's an there's investment here in a place, the depressed place like um Cleveland, that's actually good for Americans. So it's a loss for people in the Ukraine, but a, a gain for people in America. But that's not what happens. Why is that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is kind of the core argument of the supporters of those who are profiting from these systems. And again, not just those that are in places like Ukraine or Equatorial Guinea, but also the, the Americans, the Americans on the ground, the Americans in the real estate sector, the Americans in the private equity sector, the Americans in the auction house sector, those that are taking a slice of the pie to help move and hide some of this money. You know, the argument is, you know, uh, who cares what the source of it is? Who cares where this money actually came from? That's not our business. At the end of the day, the money is coming into places like Cleveland real estate, or it's coming into, uh, you know, declining steel mills or manufacturing plants that are falling apart or, or factories whose better days are clearly behind them. You know, this money is coming in and it has the potential to revitalize these local economies, these places in West Virginia, these places in Kentucky, these places in Texas, whose better days, again, seem like they're, they're behind them. Who are we to question where the money came from? because it's coming into our local economies. And I, again, I see the argument of that. It, it is a very uh, you know, uh, catchy argument. It's, it's difficult to argue against it. But what we now know, what is as clear as day, and again, as this Kolomoisky figure, this Ukrainian oligarch makes so, so, so clear, is that that money might still be coming into places like Ohio or Kentucky uh, or, or West Virginia. And that's fine at the initial outset. But what we know that happens since is that that money doesn't do anything. That money is just parked in those apartment buildings, in those commercial real estate buildings, in those factories and steel plants and manufacturing plants. It's not put there for any kind of profit generating motive whatsoever. It's not put there with the actual follow through of bringing jobs back or revitalizing those local economies. All these oligarchs are trying to do is put that money there to hide it away from any kind of prying eyes, any investigators, any tax authorities, any journalists like myself who might be looking for it. Again, I, I think this is maybe part of the dissonance from those that are working in this field and those who have a general idea of money laundering or those who are at least arguing that these money laundering services should continue. Because at the end of the day, these oligarchs, these kleptocrats are not looking to use these money laundering services to generate a profit. They are not using these money laundering services to make money. They are simply using them to hide the money and then beyond that transform that money into clean legitimate assets that nobody can track back so another way of saying that is that even though the money was coming into cleveland even though the money was coming into these smaller towns in kentucky and west virginia it was never coming in with any intention of actually having any positive 
effect on the ground. If anything, as we now know, that money only had that much more of a detrimental effect to places like Cleveland, to places like these small towns in Kentucky, in West Virginia, Illinois, and Texas. Because as we now know, even though the Ukrainian oligarch was owning all of these assets, he had this incredible portfolio of American real estate. He never did anything with them, never again brought any jobs back, never reinvested in the actual facilities of the local community. If anything, he just wanted these assets on paper, and they began declining. They began falling apart. They began this slow march to implosion. And instead of jobs being brought back, instead of local revitalization, now you had, as you just mentioned, Lev, these empty buildings, or you had jobs that were actually laid off. You know, there's one there's one really horrible case study of a, a steel plant owned by Kolomoisky in um, eastern Ohio that not only continued falling apart, but it still had people that were working there. And year after year after year, you had all of these horrific safety emergencies where you had uh, uh, you know, the blast furnace blow up, you had walls falling down, you had panels falling off the ceiling onto the workers, no longer damaging just the actual facility itself, but leading to injury after injury after injury. I mean, this is actual physical damage to American steel workers or American factory workers. And this kind of Main Street Americas that you would never associate with modern money laundering, modern kleptocracy have been suffering year and year and year, uh, 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 you know, over and over and over again because of this one single kleptocrat, this one oligarch. Again, this is only one case study that we know about. There's no reason to think this hasn't been happening over and over and over again uh, around the country. You know, um, sometimes I, I, well, after I read your book, but also like I read this this series um, about Mexican drug cartels by Don Winslow. I don't know if you've ever read his books. He's a, he's a novelist. You get the sense that dirty money is everywhere. Like I walk around New York and I feel like it's, it's infecting all parts of our society, including parts of members of the political class. Yeah. So I'm wondering, given that reality, I'm wondering what what we can do to overcome those kind of those kind of barriers to to change. Sure, sure. I mean, that's that's uh, obviously a fantastic question, and certainly something that I've been I've been wrestling with for um, you know, for some time now. You know, I will say that for as uh, depressing a topic this can be at times, and you know, you, you're exactly right. That you know, the the um, the name of my prologue is uh, this is my editor's idea. You know, it's called "Too Big to See" because you're exactly right in so many ways. And once you start kind of pulling back these layers of shell company formation, of anonymous real estate purchases, of anonymous private investments, you realize just how wide open so many sectors of the American economy truly are to dirty and illicit finance. And then beyond that, and questioning the effect that has had not on local communities, but also on the broader political system itself. Um, and it can seem at times like it's such a huge issue and it's so daunting. There's so little we can actually do about it. But I, I will say maybe this spoils a little bit of the book. The last chapter ends on, um, perhaps surprisingly, a very optimistic note about where we are right now and especially about where things are going. I don't know if you've been following the news over the past few months. This wasn't able to make it into the book. The book had already come out at that point. But in the United States of America alone, even just the past few months, we have seen unprecedented momentum toward finally cleaning up some of these systems, some of these sectors that have been allowing and incentivizing, again, this gigantic inflow of dirty and illicit wealth. Um, early last year, the American Congress finally passed legislation that will ban anonymous shell companies. Again, these shell companies being really the bedrock of these kleptocratic networks 
The U.S. has finally banned those. And then just late last year, the Biden administration out of the White House issued the U.S.'s very first anti-corruption and counter-kleptocracy strategy document. Um, and I will say, you know, y- you can find these documents that come out periodically and they're usually underwhelming. You know, they're usually, y- you know, just kind of generic documents themselves. But this specific anti-corruption document was absolutely remarkable. And I do not want to undersell the importance of this because it did not pull its punches whatsoever. It identified American industry after American industry after American industry that have been profiting from that. And then beyond that, the kinds of policies that will be needed to upend and finally end so many of these networks. Um, It was as pointed as anything I've seen, uh, not only from researchers and journalists like myself, let alone from the actual federal government. Again, it did not pull any punches whatsoever in identifying the United States of America as the center of modern offshoring as the best place in the world to hide and launder these these ill-gotten gains. Um, So you see this kind of broader, almost in many ways, historic shift taking place in Washington, D.C. You you don't see it in the states. You don't see it in places like Delaware or or Nevada or Wyoming. These these states aren't going to clean themselves up. It's going to have to be the federal government. And what we're finally seeing is the federal government actually waking up to just how damaging this issue has been for, for, for so many things, from, from the you know, uh, local domestic economies, things like the housing crisis, to broader national security concerns, to, you know, at the end of the day, concerns about American democracy writ large. Um, you know, there's still so much work that remains. There's still all kinds of policies for, again, the real estate sector, uh, you know, private investment sector, art and auction houses, you know, things like American lawyers, things like American accountants, things like American consultants and PR specialists that are working for these. Up the crisis. I mean, there's still so many industries that need to be cleaned up. But I would not be at all surprised if, Lev, you know, you and I come back in a few years' time to look back at this period or to discuss this period and realize this was a watershed era. This was really when the uh, era of American kleptocracy finally began began to come to an end. Again, we're not there. We still have so much work remaining, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if we reconvene in a few years' time and realize just how many successes this year, next year, the year after that really uh, had in store for us, again, at this uh, about this uh, uh, otherwise gargantuan issue that's been uh, with us for so, so, so long. 